Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. In Midrash, some biblical characters appear in stories that occur long after their own biblical stories have concluded. You might think these stories are Midrashic creations with little basis in text. However, in Rabbi Ethan Tucker's lecture, Time to Move On, When Relationships Seem to Last Longer Than You Think, he argues that Midrash is often not a departure from the text, but rather an inevitable outgrowth from it. Let's listen in. There's hardly a rabbinic genre that is more simultaneously adored and ridiculed, revered and mocked as Midrash. For those who feel asphyxiated by the biblical text, Midrash can be the oxygen that allows you to breathe. And indeed, there are many contemporary antinomian tendencies that are often propped up with Midrashic maneuvers as current-day radicals find their ancient exemplars in the rabbinic darshanim. And yet, for those who place textual simplicity and transparency on a pedestal, midrashim that muddle that clarity can earn at best an eye roll and at worst, outright contempt. At once, an unwarranted departure and escape hatch from the text Midrash is agreed upon by both of these factions to create a new world out of whole cloth. The only dispute being whether such innovation is welcome or not. Now, in this series, I want to offer a different perspective, one that emphasizes how deeply grounded Midrash is in the practice of reading without in any way minimizing the full force of its creativity. But instead of seeing Midrash as a departure, from the biblical text, I want us to appreciate how it is often, at least in the eyes of its master craftsmen, an almost inevitable outgrowth of careful analysis and deep religious thinking. So I want to start with my working definition of what Midrash is. Not an academic definition, it's not a scholarly definition, it's the way I experience it and how I have succeeded in having it make sense for me. And it really works on a kind of three-part process. Pretty much every midrash, I think, goes through these three stages in one way or another. There's a feature in the text that draws the careful reader's attention. Think of it as reading the Torah like a love letter. For the Hamilton lovers among you, where the comma goes in my dearest Angelica changes the entire meaning of a phrase, of a letter, of what someone's trying to convey to us. And similarly, we pay attention to the lexical and syntactic features of the Torah, and particularly when something seems out of place or seems unusual, our attention is called to it. That's one component, always, of a mitrash. Second component is some idea of religious and human concern that animates the rabbinic imagination and is in search of a canonical home. An idea, a question, a value that really exists outside of the text, something we've been thinking about, something we've been wondering about, and we want to and are looking to expecting to anchor it in the Torah. And out of those two, the feeling of something in the text worthy of attention 
and something I want to talk about comes the synthetic space of Midrash, where the text and the idea meet in the middle. They expand the canon in the process, making the Torah tell us stories and reveal details that perhaps we hadn't seen before. But once we see them through the, the eyes of the Mitrash, they're hard to unsee. So with that definition, I want us to begin to move on to this evening's focus, which is, under the question, time to move on, an invitation to look at a number of characters who seem to have ended their run in the biblical narrative, but who stubbornly return into the text of the Midrashim. I want to look at a number of examples tonight. First, beginning with the Midrash in each case, and pause to reflect on its odd nature. So we'll start with a rabbinic interpretation that may seem odd or unwarranted or beyond the bounds of what the text has to say. And then we'll see how a close reading of the Torah indeed raises serious questions that call that midrash into being. And then we'll see how the reading offered is fused with a particular outlook, a narrative, a set of values that lie beyond the text, even as they, through the midrash, find their home within it. And as I said, the best midrashim make it impossible for us to ever see the text in the same way again. Shein the great men of old, if you run through your biblical memory and go the 10 generations from Noah to Avraham, that transition in sort of phase two of the Genesis narrative of genealogy, Shem and Eber are figures scattered in that list. Shem is the son of Noah. Eber is a few generations later. They seem to just be random figures that bridge the world from Noah to Abraham. And by the time we get to the end of Parshat Noah, we have completely forgotten about them. Abraham takes center stage and we move on to thinking about and talking about him. But our first unit here is going to be to look at a battery of Midrashim. And it really is a battery that come back over and over and put Shem and Eber in key protagonist mode in later narratives where we would not expect to find. Let's go through this kind of quickly and you'll get the impressionistic feel of what's happening. In the Midrash Panchima, we have a reflection on the great feast that Avraham makes when Yitzchak, his son, is weaned. What was great about the feast? That there were great people there. Who attended? Shem, Ve'ever, Ve'avimelech. Now, Avimelech is the Philistine king who is a monarch at the time and appears in the succeeding uh, paragraphs in the same chapter. So it's obvious why if you were looking for great no notables, notaries, uh, notables, nobles of that world, uh, you would, uh, of course, land on Avimelech. But what are Shem and Aver doing there? They appear out of nowhere, seemingly coming out of obscurity. Next text. Bottom of one in the Hebrew, going into two in the English. So here we have the burial scene of Sarah, the uh, burial scene of Abraham, sorry. And the sentence that describes where Abraham was buried in the cave of Machpelah in Hebron says it was the field that Abraham bought from the Hittites. 
Shama Tubar Avraham Ishto. There, Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. Says Breshit Rabbah, Rabbi Tanhuma is quoted as, How can you talk about Abraham and Sarah being buried in one breath? There are 38 years between the burial of Sarah, who dies at 127, when Abraham, who's 10 years older, dies at 137, and Abraham's death at the age of 175. So how can you say, Shama Kubar Abraham Visaraishto? Rather, what does it come to teach? Everyone who was involved in the burial of Sarah was involved in the burial of Avraham. And Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman comes to fill out this picture and says, what did Abraham's funeral procession look like? Shem and Eber, these figures, again, from the past, were walking in front of Avraham's bier in front of his body as carried to the grave, they located the empty spot in the cave next to Sarah. might have actually not been clearly located after 38 years of elapsed, and they find the place for him they bury. Shem and Ever at the weaning feast of Yitzchak at Avraham's burial. But it goes further. When Rivka in last week's Torah reading has an impossible pregnancy and wants to know what's happening inside my body, we hear, she went to seek God. Well, where does a Jew go to seek God? In a synagogue or in a study house. Where could Rivka have gone? She must have gone to the study house of Shem and Eber, who were perhaps surprised to learn here, not only are alive, but have a study house. Emerging out of left field. And in fact, when it says by Yomer Hashem La, which simple reading of the Torah would lead us to think just that God spoke to Rivka, Rabbi Elazar says, Al Shem ben Noach. Shem, the son of Noach, was the oracle, was the prophetic voice that delivered the word of God to Rivka. The next text features a sav when he's trying to plot to kill his brother, being afraid of being tried by Shem and Ever, who are running some kind of court where apparently people who are no good nicks get strung up. And then perhaps one of the most extreme versions of the Midrash in Breshid Rabbah, chapter 68, lower down on the page, Chizkiah said, Yaakov was 63 years old when he received the blessing. He then spent 14 years hidden in the house of Ever. Shenitman Bevet Ever could also mean kind of buried, immersed in the house of Ever, seemingly studying Torah there. And then seven more years to work for Rachel, which means he only got married at the age of 84. But the Torah tells us that Esav was 40 when he got married. We learn from here that the Holy and Blessed One defers blessings for the righteous, moves them up for the wicked. Finally, Yisrael Ahavet Yosef, when the Torah describes that Israel, that Jacob, loved his son Joseph, Mikol Banav, more than any of his other children, Rabbi Nechemiah says, in what sense did he love him? Shakol Lo. 
all of the laws and traditions and teachings which Shem and Eber had passed on to Yaakov, Yaakov decided to pass on to Yosef. That was the mode in which he preferred him to his other descendants. So what is going on here? These two men, Shem and Eber, who have disappeared from the scene, we haven't heard about them for chapters and chapters, they're hanging around, running a house of study. They are the conduits of God's voice, of God's law. This is the stuff out of which outlandish rabbinic midrash seems to be made. We just randomly throw out a bunch of figures and characters uh, that will make the story maybe more interesting, but this seems like a real candidate for Chazal. Our sages sometimes simply make things up in order to embellish the story. That's the Midrash. We move now to really understanding the text and the idea that lie behind it. So this is just sort of visually laid out a long list, the chronology of the generations from Noah to Abraham. The generations of Noah begin, we begin with Noah's oldest son, Shem, and talk about how he was 100 years old when he had his son, and then he lived 500 years after he had his son, Arpachshad, and the rest of the list works that way. We get the number of years until the man has his son, first son, most important son, notable son, and then the number of years that are the remainder of his life. I've highlighted in particular the lifespans of Shem and Eva. Shem in the first line, first paragraph, and Aver in the fourth paragraph. And that's because if you sit down and you do the math, you will actually find something quite interesting, which is that though this just reads as, well, there was one generation and then another that came and replaced it and another that came and replaced it, and you imagine they all sort of get phased out evenly. Actually, that is not how the math works out. Sam and Aver lived sufficiently longer than all of the other people on this list, such that they outlive them all. And in fact, if you go down to the final pages of this document for a moment, we'll come back in a minute, but back down on page 10, you can see a great graphic representation of this. You first have Adam through Noah going uh, on the right side of the page. But starting right there in the middle, you have a little bar with a 1558 on the top and a 2158 on the bottom with the word shame in the middle, right there where the arrow is hovering. Okay? That represents shame's lifespan as measured by the years since creation. Just start the clock with Adam's uh, creation and run all the years as they're told out in the Torah. And you'll find that Shem is born in year 1558. And because he lives 600 years, he makes it to 2158. Look now at his end date there, running across the bottom, compared to everyone else that follows in that list. Arpachshad, Shelach, Peleg, Reu, Srug, Nahor, all of their end dates, including the end date of Terah, the father of Abraham, and we'll come to Abraham in a minute, all of them predeceased Shem, except for Shelach and Abed. 
Shalach and Eber are the only ones who are even in the ballpark of outliving some of those other people. And Shem also outlives Shalach. So we actually have a picture here just from the math, just from reading the Torah. These men are alive. And now, when you continue doing the math, you find something even more stunning, which is that Shem's date of death is 2158. Eber's date of death is 2187. Avraham dies at 2123. They outlive Avraham. These men who seem to be back, buried in the prehistory, they are around, not only when Avraham is born, but when Avraham dies. They are around when Yitzhak is born in the year 2048. And by the biblical chronology, they are around when Yaakov is born in 2108. In fact, Ever, living till 2187, is alive until Yaakov is 79 years old. Okay? A good chunk of his life, Ever is alive. You can look on your own if you want a non-graphical representation of this on page nine, laid out blue, red for blue significant births, red significant deaths, and green items, which we'll come back to, that fill out the timeline of significant things in the story of Abraham and his descent. But let's go back now to the earlier bit here. And with that material in tow, with that reading of everything, into, we now realize that we have a very different story that we are telling. We are not fantastically inventing the long life of Shem and Eber. We are actually simply reading the biblical story and discovering that they are alive. And if you go to the next page here, you'll see, just wrote it out in terms of data points that we just had. You can see the story. You can look at this after on your own. All of those pre-Abrahamic figures are dead by the time of Yaakov's birth, other than Shelach, Shem, and Eber. Shelach is insignificant because he's born after and predeceases Eber. And so Shem and Eber actually become these custodians of a lost world. Now, here's where I think the text and the idea meet in the middle. The text forces us to confront a world in which Shem and Eber are alive through much of Yaakov's life. That's the text. And the idea is the notion that actually the great elders of the world, the people from a prior generation, are supposed to and are meant to play a role of being the custodians of culture and the people who pass on to future generations what it is they're supposed to care about. If you have an idea that the world is not just reinvented, if in fact the whole story of the Mabul, of the flood, is that the earth did have the reset button pushed once, but that's not how it's ever going to be again, then the role of Zikinim, the role of elders, is actually critical in the world remaking itself. The world does not remake itself through being wiped out and restarted. The world remakes itself by drawing on the insights of the past and figuring out how is it that those insights are translated to the present and how do they carry it into a different future. Shem and Eber sit there waiting, like a loaded weapon, waiting to be picked up as the agents of that reinvention. 
It's on some level a rebellion against the notion that Avraham possibly could have been invented out of scratch. There had to be good people before him who at least had some inkling, some notion of what God wanted. And even if they were not the one who was going to be chosen to go to a new land and start a new people, there are always elders from whom we learn. And if Shem and Aver, or Aver is around when Yaakov is heading east, well, it must be that Yaakov stopped off and paid a visit to them. We're not going to go into all the fine details of the Yaakov narrative, but suffice it to say, and you can work it through in the document here, there's an additional textual problem there, which is when you do the math of how old Yaakov was when he went to Egypt and working backwards when he must have had Yosef born as his 11th son and put the closest date you can for Yaakov's departure from his parents to the time when Yaakov must have headed off to Lavan you end up with a 14-year gap. There's actually no way to do the biblical chronology without having 14 missing years in Yaakov's life, at least. Now, does the Torah say he went and studied in yeshiva for 14 years? Of course not. But the idea steps in only when the lacuna has been created by the text. The text invites us to wonder what happened to those 14 years. Our midrashic mind and values make us think, well, it must be that there was some contact with this great man, Ava, who carries with him all of this knowledge of the past, the only sensible solution, or better yet, the story we want to tell within that biblical canon while being faithful to it, is of course Yaakov would have spent those 14 missing years studying with his ancestor. And the role for Ever, I would say, is also particularly sealed as being important, because after all, what are we called? We are called Ivrim. What is Avram called when the palit, when the survivor of the battle between the four and the five kings comes and reports what has happened? It says, by Yagel Avram ha'ivri. Now, sure, Ivri may mean the guy who came, may Ever who came from the other side of the river from this land, but Ivri is too close to Aver, given all of these other patterns, to avoid suggesting maybe Avraham is actually the culture bearer, the custodian of Aver's letter. So that's Midrash number one. It's a Midrash that takes obscure figures you thought were long gone, shows you, read closely, you will see they're still alive. And the Torah must have bothered to tell you they were still alive. And it must be that Avram is called Avram Ivri because some transmission happened there. And then, not only do we fill in certain gaps in the text, but actually we're left with a model of, oh, maybe that's how I'm supposed to go through the world. Maybe even when I think I'm doing something new, I'm supposed to try to find who are the figures who are like Shem and Eber in my life? And how do I study in their Beit Midrash? Because the culture that we're a part of, says a Midrash like this, is not an iconoclastic, burn everything down and start over culture. It is a culture that always goes back to the wellsprings of knowledge, of insight, of history, and finds the prophets of old to whom we can turn to get guidance for the present. 
That's Midrash, or more properly, suite of Midrashim number one. Let's move on now to Avraham as grandfather. And another puzzling Midrash. Again, the surface reader of the Torah will come to chapters 22 and 25 in Bereshit, here on the sheet in the original. And again, you can click to find uh, the translation. You find the end of Abraham's life. He dies. He's buried by Yitzchak and Yishmael. And then we move on to talking about how after Abraham died, God blessed Yitzchak. And then a few chapters later, and now we'll tell you the rest of the story of Yitzchak, and we get on with his children. No one reading this would ever imagine that there is any overlap between those two narratives. And so when you come across the passage in the Talmud Bavli and Baba Batra, that's reflecting on the phrase, Vashem Beirachat Avraham Bakol, God blessed Avraham with everything in his later years that one of the interpretations of the particular blessing that Avraham enjoyed was Shalom Marad Esav Be'amah. That Esav, assumed here by the Midrash to have you know, gone astray, been a wayward descendant, did not manifest those rebellious traits while Avraham was still alive. How do we know that, says the Midrash? Well, when did Esav go astray? When he came back from the field and was tired, and what did he do? He sold his birthright. It's now, Oto hayom niftar Abraham avinu, avinu On that very day, when the birthright was being sold, that was the date of Abraham's death. And why? was Yaakov cooking a lentil stew to comfort his father Yitzchak. This was the Seudat Abraham of Abraham Avin. Okay, this is a Midrash, you may have encountered it reading Rashi. Um, it's a sort of well-known Midrash in the corpus. But I'm asking you to focus for a moment on why would you say that? Right? This seems to really come out of nowhere. Why are we turning this in to Abraham's funeral? and taking what just seems to be a random event of Yaakov cooking some soup into something of those kinds of epic proportions. So let's go back, having considered the Midrash, and encounter the thing in the text that gives rise to it and the idea that perhaps is propelling it. Here, too, it's the math that makes us understand what's happening. Abraham lives 175 years. Torah tells us that. We also know Abraham is 100 when Yitzchak is born. And we know Yitzchak is 60 when the twins are born. And that means that Abraham is 160 years old at the time when Esav and Yaakov are born. And that means that the twins, Yaakov and Esav, are 15 when Abraham died. Note now the use of the term, the young man grew up. I'm not sure if you would pick 15 specifically as the date that that indicates, but it's not a bad marker for the range of time when someone becomes a na'ar, independent enough, strong enough to go out and start hunting things in the field. 
And we know that Avram is passing away at some point during this narrative. So now going back, realizing that Avram must be alive. And again, we won't scroll down to it now, but you can go down to that chart uh, at the end. Page 11, the very last page, you'll find just the Avot piece without all those Shem and Eber early characters. You'll see in very clear graphic form how, yes, Avram is alive until the birth of Yaakov and Esau. The idea here seems to be a deep pathos, deep sense of pain, assuming that Esau is doing things that are displeasing. And even with the most generous reading of Esau in the Pshant, even without going into solving the problem of the Esau Saneti in the book of Malachi and the other things in the Tanakh that kind of force you to give him a little bit of a negative assessment, just right in Parashat Toldot in last week's Torah reading, Esau makes some bad decisions that really upset his parents. His marriage to Hittite women is a great disappointment to them. It's someone who's not living up to family expectations. What's the idea here? The idea here is to recognize a name that actually this happens to grandparents all the time. Happens to parents too. It happens to grandparents certainly on a multi-generational scale where there is a sense of things you wanted your line to stand for and to be committed to, which they didn't commit to or they don't commit to. And there is a pain there. And by conveying the notion that a kindness was done to Abraham by sparing him the full manifestation of that pain and that loss of his legacy through a sub choosing a different path, actually the Midrash does a number of things. First of all, solves the problem of Abraham must have been a significant figure in Esav and, and Yaakov's life. Right? We know they live in Hebron together. That's where Abraham is when he dies. And that's where Yitzchak is for a whole bunch of time. So must have been a presence in their life. Where is he? And his death must have been a significant event in their life. So the notion of a random lentil through actually potentially now being a partial response to Abraham's death clears up that question, that lacuna in the text, again, demanded just from the math of the generations here. But I think it's also doing two other things. There's a kind of naming and honoring of the pain that grandparents can feel when this happens, a naming of what it is to feel that your descendants aren't carrying on things that are important to you, and feeling like we want to say the Torah understands that, and we want to say that the course of time was set up such that Avraham did not have to feel the full brunt of that pain. And there is implicitly, I think on a more subliminal level, a statement of the importance and the hope that descendants will find a way to live out the legacies of those who have come before them and to recognize that if they don't, that will cause pain and brokenness. And we're inserting that into the story here because it must be there. Again, the Midrash is not making something up, but the Midrash is not also just reading what's written on the page. It's between the text and the idea that that fusion happened. And this is one of my favorite and most haunting Midrashim. 
Yitzchak as grandfather. Yitzchak as grandfather is a relationship I think we don't think about at all. Because if you follow the narrative of the Torah, you get to Breshit Lamed Hay, Breshit chapter 35, Yitzchak dies at the end of Parshat Vayishlach. Really all we seem to have heard about is Esav and Yaakov cannot get along. Yitzchak tells Yaakov to leave. Yaakov gets married, builds an entire family out east in Haran, comes home, and the feeling you get is he comes home, his father is on death's door, he catches him right at the end of his life, and he buries him. And that's the end of the story. And then, which I think when you're reading on a surface level, you read almost as Yaakov then settled in the land in which his father had lived when he was alive, in Eretz Canaan. The notion that there's any overlap between Yitzchak and Yaakov and his son's life in Canaan is totally against the grain of the whole sequence and even emotional tenor of the text. And then you get the following pasuk, on its own, not particularly noteworthy, after Yosef is sold by his brothers and passed off as dead, and Yaakov says, Taruf taraf Yosef, yes, Yosef, my son, has been torn, torn to pieces. We then hear this verse. All of Yaakov's sons and daughters, the daughters is another Midrashic Avenue. I thought there was only one daughter, but let's just say for now, all of their descendants, daughters, sons-in-law, daughters-in-law, etc., try to comfort him. He refuses to be comforted. And he says, no, I will go to the grave mourning my son. And then, Vayev Koto Aviv. What's the plain sense of Vayev Koto Aviv? His father, Yosef's father, Yaakov, cried for him, mourned him, mourned for him. Vayev Koto Aviv, it's just summing up. He refused to be comforted. Rather, he cried for him, he mourned for him. Look at Rashid Rabbah. Vayev Koto Aviv, Who's crying here? Yitzchak. Aviv doesn't mean Aviv shall Yosef. Aviv means Aviv shall Yaakov. Yaakov's father tried over Yosef, but as we'll see in a minute, Oto may also be being read here as with him. Oto can sometimes in biblical syntax be like Ito. Rabbi Levi, Rabbi Sinan Amru. Yitzchak, whenever he was with Yaakov, would cry. And as soon as he left, he would kind of take off the mask of mourning, bathe, anoint himself, have a good meal, get a nice glass of wine, and rejoice. Meaning what? Yitzhak knew, according to this Midrash, that Yosef was alive. 
But when with Yaakov, he concealed it and mourned with him and played along as if he was dead. But as soon as he left him, he rejoiced knowing that Yosef was alive and perhaps knowing he was destined for great things. Why didn't he reveal it to his son? If God didn't see fit to reveal to Yaakov that his son is alive, why am I going to break in there and reveal the secret? Now, what is going on here? This just seems like magical realism. We're bringing someone back from the dead. We're inserting someone. We can tell a crazy story about undercover uh, joy in the context of mourning. What's happening? Why would you generate this mitra? So here, too, we have to start with math and the narrative. And a reminder, again, I cannot say it enough times, the midrashim are always reading and when a midrash seems fantastical to you, actually, it's probably a sign that you are not reading as carefully as them. So let's go back and do the work now. I referred to this before, but just very quickly, I have the verses here. And then on the next page, it's laid out in a series of data points there. You can find it uh, clearly. When Yaakov comes down to Egypt and stands in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? He says, So we know Yaakov is 130 years old when he comes to Egypt. And at that time, when Yosef, right before this scene, tells his brothers, bring my father down, he says, We are now in year two of the famine, meaning we've gone through seven years of bumper crops, two years of the famine. So when did the years of plenty begin? Nine years earlier, when Yaakov was 121. And how old was Yosef when he went out and becomes the Grand Vizier of Egypt? The Yosef ben Shloshim Shana, the Omdolitne Paro Melach Mitzrayim. So when Yaakov is 121, Yosef is 30, which means we know that Yosef is born when Yaakov is 91. Well, guess what? If Yaakov is 91 when Yosef is born, and we already know from an earlier Midrash, Yitzhak ben Shishim Shana beledet Ota, Yitzhak is 60 years old than Yaakov. Well, then, when Yosef is born, Yitzhak is 151 years old, and we know from Bereshit Lamedei that Yitzhak lives to the age of 180. Meaning, Yitzhak is alive until Yosef is 29. And when does Yosef disappear? Yosef ben There are 12 years after Yosef's disappearance when Yitzchak is alive and living near Yaakov. So of course he's there. Now let's go back to our Midrash. Of course Yitzchak has to be present because he's alive. He's alive for quite some time. 
There's also, back in that verse, in Breshit Lamed Zayin, a little bit of a syntactical incongruity, something to pique the imagination here. It says, All of his father, all of his sons and daughters came to comfort him. And then it says, His father. Actually, if you follow just the possessive of those words, it seems like if Banav are the sons of ya- uh, Yaakov, Avi should be the father of Yaakov. Why would we suddenly switch to Yosef, who's not a subject in the sentence at all? Okay? Combine that fact, which is really just a careful reading of the Hebrew, with the fact that Yitzhak must be alive, you must put him into the picture. And now the question, as I've been taking us through sort of uh, methodologically throughout here is, so what's the value? What's the idea? And I think here we've got two things. One is, of course, Yitzhak is there. How could he be Yaakov's father? How could he be someone who is in that position and not be connected to this event? But much more importantly, and more deeply, what we have going on here is the notion that there is short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. What Yitzchak and Yaakov represent in this mitrach is the kind of duality, the dialectic tension between what it means to see and feel the pain of the moment as opposed to seeing a longer arc that brings redemption. Yitzchak and Yaakov, I don't think, are just father and son. They represent a kind of dual perspective that the Jewish people has often had to balance throughout its history. You can be in a moment in the present that is full of pain, and you must also simultaneously find a way to be in a future that is going to be full of redemption. God here, for whatever reason, is splitting, splitting those experiences between Yaakov and Yitzchak. Yaakov is left to be in the moment to simply focus on his son. But Yitzchak is able to remember, Brit ben Abitarim is given insight by God that there is a longer arc here. There's no way Yosef can be completely lost. There's no way that can be the end of the story. And therefore we put him in, not only because he belongs there by age, but because that idea we need. We need it to be there. And this is the obvious place where we drop it in this story. Let's end with one last bit here. And this is one in some ways I want to pursue from a different direction. And it's another somewhat well-known midrash, Avraham as son. And what I think is stunning about this midrash when you consider it properly is it uncovers something that the Torah actually tried to hide. So here again, if you read on a simple level, it seems like Terach has Avram, his oldest, and they go from Ur Kasdim to Haran, don't quite make it to Canaan. Terach dies there, and then In fact, the way the text almost reads is Terach stopped in Haran, and Avram couldn't move on from there because that's where his father stopped. Only when his father died could Abraham then receive the word of God and say, okay, your father's done. Those generations are finished. We're starting again. 
and we're moving forward. But Breshit Rabbah, again, notices that our stubborn timelines don't allow us, if we're careful readers, to reach that conclusion. chapter 39, Wait a minute. What was, did we just say right before? So what are you telling me? Avram was only told to go after Terach died. Do the math. Terach dies at 205. But at what age did Avraham, uh, did Terach give birth to Avraham? It says, Meaning, Terach is 70 years older than Avram. And how old is Avram when he leaves Canaan? 75. When he leaves for Canaan, 75. What does that mean? Terah, at the time that Avram is leaving, Canaan is 145 years old. Well, if Terah lives till 210, he has 65 years left in his life before Avram, right before, from the time Avram leaves. Ela batchila says the Midrash, your first instinct will be to say, That no, it doesn't mean he's, he's dead. It just means wicked people, who we assume Terach is here, otherwise, why doesn't he make it to Canaan? Why is he the one who's chosen? Why did his son be chosen? There must be a break there. He died there spiritually. That's going to be your first instinct. He's alive, but we say that. But that can't be the real reason. That's insufficient. It's too misleading to say he's dead. What really happened? God actually tells him when his father is 145 years old, I need you to leave. I need you to make Aliyah and leave your parents back in America. Go. That's what you got to do. And Avram says, how can I do that? That's going to be a total desecration of the divine name. They're going to say, I'm begging my father in his old age. I'm giving you an exemption from the command you honor your parents. No one else is going to get that exemption. So don't worry. You're off the hook from that mitzvah. It won't be a violation. Below all, I'm also going to structure the Torah such that it will appear he died before you left. This is an incredible meta-midrash. Because what's happening here? They're going out of their way to tell you the story of the coverage of. You might not have noticed the cover-up job. In fact, the cover-up job's pretty good until you see this midrash or you really sit down and work through the math, you would never think it. The midrash here pulls the veil back and says, I want to tell you what's happening. Now, let's get to the value and the idea and with this we'll close. The textual problem, as we said, is the math doesn't add up. And in fact, go down now to the next page where I have sort of laid out with the blue and the red. And you have here by year when everything happens. Look actually what happens. 
Teraf is born in 1878. Avraham is born in 1948. Great, great number for leaving for Eretz Canaan. And then, look what happens. Yishmael is born in 2034. Yitzchak is born in 2048. Teraf dies in 2083. Not only does Avraham leave Teraf in his old age, he denies him any relationship with his grandchildren. Terach is alive. Terach is alive during that feast that Shem and Eber are at. Shem and Eber are at Yitzchak's weaning feast and his own grandfather Terach is not. Says the Midrash, we don't want you to erase that and overlook that. Actually, the Midrash justifies Avraham but it's not willing to justify Abraham on the basis of a cover-up job alone. It brings in God to say, I'm exempting you from Kibbut That You have a mission. You have to do it. But we must understand that actually this is not the way anyone subsequent is supposed to be. This is not the way that anyone else other than Abraham is supposed to play this out. This to me is the most powerful example of a Midrash that is dealing with an idea, something that is deeply, deeply bothering. In this case, the darshan about Avraham and parents and being with them. And on the other hand, the textual issue that invites it and begs for it to be there. But instead of actually filling the gap, it retrofits the notion that this was a story actually that maybe the Torah properly read was actually trying to cover up we as the Darshanim are going to bring an aspect of it out. We want you to understand that Abraham did what he had to do, and we don't want this sitting there as a precedent for other people to follow. That's where I'm going to bring us to close tonight. I hope you've seen how the timeline, the fuller picture of reading these stories and these genealogies actually reveals that you can't carefully read the Torah without seeing these figures reemerging. Because the very numbers, dates, longevity that the Torah assigns to these figures actually makes very clear we are meant to understand that they are still alive beyond the sub-literary unit in which they are focused. And then the Midrashic mind runs with that and says, what do we then imagine that was like? What was explicit? What was implicit? What are the ideas, the motivations, and the values that have been carrying us outside of the text? And how maybe is the text with those hidden details, inviting us to contemplate it more clearly and to bring it into our life. This episode of Tashma was produced by Jeremy Tabak and Sam Greenberg. Thank you to Michal Birnbaum and Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.